Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Amy Buckley is the Chief Academic Officer and Co-Founder of StudyHelp, a tutoring platform. You can hear Amy talk about Study Help at stephenmaletto.com slash 449. That's episode 449. Amy has given me a few hundred dollar gift cards uh, for Study Help, you know, to give away. That is so cool. Just send me an email at my contact page, stephenmaletto.com slash contact. Simply say, I would like a hundred dollar gift card to Study Help. First come, first serve. This is a giveaway that is awesome. Good luck. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth B. Splain about her novel, Swan Song. It's all about a Jewish operatic star in World War II Germany that deals with loss of status, imprisonment, and fear of death. Historical fiction that reads like novelized history. Powerful book. Keeps you engaged. So much to learn. Thanks for listening. And oh, by, by the way, it'd be so cool if, you know, if you'd go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmaletto.com, slash sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Elizabeth B. Splain is a retired opera singer who enjoys reading and writing World War II stories that focus on tenacity, hope, and the indomitable human spirit. Prior to writing, Elizabeth earned an A.B. in psychology from Duke University and an M.H.A. from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She spent 11 years working in healthcare before switching careers to become a professional opera singer and voice teacher. When not writing, Elizabeth teaches classical voice in Rhode Island, where she lives with her husband, sons, and dogs. Today, we're focused on her novel, Swan Song. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks, Steve, so much. Well, it's great talking with you, and I, I'm looking forward to this. And I got to tell you, Swan Song's an incredible book. It uh, really it's powerful, and it, it, it brings you into the story, and you, you feel for the characters and such. And but before we get into your book, we got to talk about. Uh, I mean, you're a retired opera singer. Where'd your interest in opera come from, and what do you like about performing? Well, I wanted to, my mom tells the story that I was whistling when I was two. I don't know if that's actually possible, but I was very, very into music when I was a kid and there really was no music in my family. I would, my mom's tell stories that I would weep when classical music came on, if it was sad. And she actually took me to the doctor when I was six months, eight months old and said, I'm concerned about this child, which she probably had every right to do. But the doctor said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but uh, I think she'll probably be very musical. And my mom was like, yeah, you're crazy, whatever. And so then when I was five, I knew I wanted to be a singer. I, it's just all I wanted to do. And so um, I said I wanted to take voice lessons. But back then, kids didn't really take voice lessons. You had to be at least 12. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and the music school there wouldn't take a child younger than 12. And so I did everything you know, I could, my parents put me in tap ballet, jazz, gymnastics, guitar, piano. I mean, you name it, I did it. They were trying to distract me and I just kept coming back to voice. So finally, when I was 12, the Wilmington Music School accepted me as a student. And my teacher happened to be from the Philadelphia Academy of Music. She used to come down once a week, I guess, and only take certain students. I didn't know that. And I think I just happened to get her, happened to be assigned to her. Cause as I recall, they didn't hear me sing prior to that. 
And I walked in my first lesson with my Broadway book because back then Annie was all the rage. And I walked in and I slapped my Broadway book down and she and my teacher had a mask on, a surgical mask, ironically. And she physically drew back and she said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, this is my Broadway book. I want to be Annie, thus then I'll come out. And I and she said, oh, no, no, we don't sing Broadway in my studio. And so I imitated her and physically and vocally. And I said, what do we sing? And she said, we sing opera. And I remember I looked at my mother and I said, what's opera? And that literally, that lesson, she had me singing in French. Before I ever studied the language, she was smart because French is actually one of the toughest languages, in my opinion, to sing in. But I was singing in French that day. And she, at the end of the lesson, she said to my mom, she's going to be a mezzo-soprano and she could really do this if you support the cause. So I studied for a couple of years, but I went to a school where um, sports were really important. And of course, you know, academics were important. So I stopped studying at around 16. I went to college. I ended up studying voice through college. Then I didn't sing for 10 years and I went to grad school, got my degree, worked in healthcare and was kind of, I was very, very sad. We had two kids at the time living outside of Boston and my husband said, you need to be singing. You need, and I said, how, how are we going to do that? You know, we both have full-time jobs. He said, we got to figure it out. He was, he's wonderful. So I recorded a CD just cause I didn't know what to do. I hooked up with this guy and we did a barter system and I recorded a CD. Then I attended New England Conservatory's extension program in the opera. And then I started just on a whim auditioning. I auditioned for Carmen with Boston Lyric after studying with voice teachers, um, for a couple of years. And it was right before we were moving to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And um, it was an amazing audition. And that was it for me. I was hooked. So long story short, too late. I ended up auditioning anywhere I could, anyone who would hear me sing. And I slowly worked my way up because I didn't have a music degree. I didn't have a vocal degree. I really wasn't a great musician, but I love to sing. And I had a great foundation vocally in classical voice. So I started auditioning and I started getting parts. And every time the maestro would ask for a volunteer, I would raise my hand. It didn't matter what it was. I just, anything I could do to move myself forward in, in a positive way, not ever taking someone else's spot or anything. And it just slowly built until one day I was standing in the Detroit Opera House uh, or yeah, auditioning. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm really, I've, I'm here. Like, it's cool. Um, so that's how I did it. And then I, I loved being on stage while I was on stage. I set very realistic goals for myself and I met all of them. And then about six years ago, I was on stage with maybe four or five years ago, actually, I was on stage with one of my students singing the Lachme duet, the flower duet from Lachme. And it's one of the most beautiful duets in the world, in my opinion. And I forgot the words twice. And I thought, what is happening? And I realized I just didn't want to be there anymore. I, I was done. So I came home and I said, I think I'm done performing. And my husband said, yeah, right. And I said, no, I, I'm, I think I'm done. And so I was contracted to sing with an opera company, a children's opera company. I played the witch in Hansel and Gretel, which I had always wanted to play. And I did that. And then I was done. And so now I perform when people ask me to, like I'll perform for, I just did a performance the other night for this book to represent the book because it's about an opera singer and that draws people, you know, because they want to know more. Um, but otherwise I don't perform and I'm very happy. <laughs> that's cool. That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, cause you didn't, perf you, you get into the world and then you didn't perform and you do another world and then you, then you get it, you know, you're in that world and then just kind of realize it's time to move on. And, and that's, I could see that as being a neat uh, thing, uh, talent to have with with marketing your book especially yeah. drawing them out since you it's all about an opera singer i mean it's that's exactly right and and the only reason and we'll get into this later i'm sure but you know the only reason that swan song exists is because of an opera youth opera group with whom i sang in hershey pennsylvania and um so we can talk more about that but otherwise swan song probably wouldn't exist well that's neat that makes that's cool too we got to um, little teaser. Yeah, I was going to say that's we got to going to leave the audience right there and uh, say, <laughs> and more on that to come soon. But uh, before that, uh, you know what? 
And, and so I am, you know, I'm going to shift to your writing. I mean, you've written several books, Swan Song's historical fiction, and it reads like you were there, which is what's really cool. Um, the, uh, I'm, I'm a former history teacher and a history, uh, I have a couple degrees in history. And um, at one point I would have got my doctorate in history and then I decided to become a principal instead. So I got a different doctorate, but. Yeah, but good for you. That's awesome. Thanks. And, uh, but it was, you know, and it, it, and one of the things I'm fascinated is about history of peoples, especially um, that time frame in which you're talking, we're talking about here where the World War II happened. And, uh, um, and you just, it just reads like, it reads like the best his- historical nonfiction that's written like a novel is what it reads Thank like. Thank you. That is high praise coming from you. And I mean that. I mean, to have a history expert and principal say that to me is probably going to make my months. So thank you. That really means a lot to me. Well, cool. You're welcome. And it's, and I, it's, it's just the, it's the coolest thing. As I found myself and I, and eventually I'm going to ask you a question about the end notes because you do this awesome thing at the end of the book. But the, uh, you know, one of the things, could you talk a little bit about the research that you did to address the historical elements of your story? Yeah. Um, So um, I read every book I could get my hands on written by Uh, obviously adults who are now probably in their 80s and 90s who were children in the Terezin camp in Czechoslovakia. Um, So I read that. I read uh, every book I could get my hands on on Eva Braun. Um, I had written, I had read lots of articles about Adolf Hitler and, you know, over the years have read World War II fiction and nonfiction because it interests me. But after I wrote the first draft of Swan Song, I went back and read The Life and Death of Adolf Hitler by Robert Payne. And that reinvigorated me as I rewrote, as I went through the second draft. It gave me much more insight into Hitler's psyche, which is a terrible, terrible place to live. And um But the reason I didn't do more the first time around for the rough draft, the reason I didn't do more on Hitler is because I didn't want it to be a book about Hitler. I wanted it to be a book about this opera singer. In fact, originally, Willie Hitler wasn't even involved either. So I really was supposed to be about this opera singer and the choices she made and how they altered her as a person. So the answer, the direct answer is I read all the books I could get my hands on and did lots of research on the internet, you know, even, I mean, even Wikipedia, I know it's Wikipedia. I took it with a grain of salt, but I read everything that was out there. You know, it's, it's, I wanted to understand um, what other people had written. I wanted to understand um, getting inside people's heads is one of my favorite things, not just not in a bad way, but like even trying to understand like you and I chatting before we went on today, I got to know you a little bit and that's important to me. That's how things get better and people get better and circumstances change for for the positive. So um, anything I could get my hands on, I read or documentaries on TV. If there were any world war II, I would just turn them on the um, you know, people, people's fascination with World War II isn't going away. It just doesn't. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that the greatest generation is dying. Um, Secondarily, though, there are the secondary victims. The victims, obviously, of the Holocaust also, who were still alive, are are passing away. But their children are secondary victims, and they have stories to tell. I'm a coach in a writing competition that I won that was published for my book that was published last year called Devil's Grace. And in this competition, when I was a coach, one of the books that was in the competition, the woman talks about how her mother would hide under floorboards when the Nazis would come. And her mother ended up being, quote unquote, fine. Right. And she survived and they moved to the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. But the blah, 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 that's where the pain lies. And so she grew up with a mother who would have flashbacks to laying under the floorboards as a child. So these secondary victims also have stories to tell. And obviously, the third point is that it's imperative that this continues to be, that everyone learns about this, the, the truth, the real truth. And I learned a lot of real truths that I don't think I really was aware of in my research, um, many of which did not shine a very nice light on the United States. Um, 
But I think it's important that people still hear the truth, because regardless of how you feel about politics these days, there's no question that we are incredibly divided right now. And there's there are similarities. And I was very aware of that when I was writing um, to how people come to how and why people come to power, how they maintain that power and what happens afterwards. It's imperative. And all of these books, not just Swan Song, can be read if you read it with that mindset, it really informs in a different way. And finally, the reason I think people don't lose interest in World War II is because, and you know, Swan Song opens with the phrase, Hitler was a monster, except he wasn't. He was, he was just a guy, right? A narcissistic sociopath who convinced millions of people to join his cult. How does that happen? There are societal, economic you know, circumstances that, that are, um, are the, uh, the feeder, I guess. Right. But how does that happen? You know, choices are made along the way. And one of the big themes in the book is choice. There's always a choice. You may not like the choice, but there are choices and morality kind of becomes a sliding scale. And maybe we'll talk about that later, but that's why I think it's important to understand, get inside Hitler's head a little bit, to understand how he came to power and all of the things that happened along the way that allowed him to continue being in power despite people trying desperately to get him out. So, oh, it's a it's a crazy uh, history that allows him to come to power, and the timing's perfect for someone who has his inclinations because of uh, the hatred left over from the First World War and the, yes. the distrust of nations. But, amongst themselves and then a mutual hatred for, you know, who actually controlled money, banks and, and so forth. Yes. And Germany's economy was in tatters Yes, and, you know, paying back the tree of Versailles or what, I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, it's bad. It, is bad. <laughs> it was bad. And it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's interesting what you're talking about because one of the things that's fascinating to me is with the era. And um, I mean, like you said, we're so divided today. It's insane. And, you know, people, came and volunteered from farms that were across this country that, you know, they didn't have TV, they may have had radio, but it became a calling and they went and most of them didn't come back. Right. And, yeah. And they died in some farm field in another country someplace. And, and many of them, you know, the only thing they had left was their identification tags. So, you know, it's, um, and it's just a, it's just a sad thing. And it's, and what's interesting, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that, you know, today we have all these distractions, all these things that, uh, that can kind of sort of connect us, even though we seem to be the most connected yet not connected people in the world, um, mm -hmm. forever history, but they had none of that. And they came, you know, so you could, you know, you could basically do lots of things without even most of the populace, even knowing what you were doing, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so they had to believe in, you had to find something to believe in. <laughs> and I, yeah, I just, exactly. yeah. that just fascinates me that, that era, because you really, you know, unlike today where there's constantly, you know, too much about things where it's like, I don't want to know about this person. I don't want to know about that person. I just need to know what the real story is. And that's all messed up in the middle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So it's yep. crazy, but I, it's interesting because you, your story brings out this, this, the same sort of thing about the, the, the toughness and the, just the, and you talk about the choices. Oh my gosh. There's, you know, one of the, one of the things that came immediately to mind was the, the, the guard who, uh, officer, if you will, who realizes who he has, he has the singer, um, with him, even though in the beginning, there's no way that this could be her because right. you know, like she has, has a broken nose or something at that time. And, yep. you know, and, uh, and then, he, and when he finally realizes this is, you know, he he starts vocalizing that he's going to make these choices because he could do this or he could do that, and you know, it just that in itself is kind of uh, unnerving because at any point, because I, somewhere in there, I may be combining it too soon within the story, but I mean, uh, at a uh, combination, but you know, the same guy kills a kid, <laughs> right? For and and that is the first real death that Ursula feels responsible for. And that's, I mean, there's so many critical moments, but um, she could have stood up sooner. She tried and Marika pulled her down. 
spoiler alert. Um, but she, her gut told her to stand and she didn't. And that is the first, you know, it's like notches on a belt. She's like that. I was responsible for that. I have to live with that for the rest of my life, which is why she thinks of him at the very end, literally at the very end, because he was the first. And um, the other interesting thing about that, which I hadn't really thought about, about him, her meeting the um, Seidel Seidel at the, on the train is that, you know, we often, especially in this nation, we, worship celebrities right so back then no tv so but everybody knew who ursula becker was because opera is still so um prevalent in europe and so she was truly a diva the original title of the book was swan song of a jewish diva that was the original title she was truly a diva and um when he couldn't see the diva though because she had already been beaten and so it's all a facade, you know, fame is a facade, celebrity is a facade and it's, and we worship it in this country. And so it was an example and I, I didn't plan it that way, but it's true. You know, it's, it's a good example of her being a diva, her big transformation in the book is that she goes from being a self-absorbed, self-possessed diva into a caring human being who literally at the end is willing to sacrifice herself for the children. So it's a major transformation to her, but God, what a terrible road to have to travel to make that transformation. It would have been, especially because there is some protection in her, in her celebrity, in her, in her, uh, that fact that she is a celebrity that there's, you know, if she just stands up and says who she is, you know, it's quite possible that she could end up skirting that road by herself. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, most people in that camp, you, I'm sure you know this, but most people in that particular camp, it was called, not, not my words, the country club of concentration camps. Because heroes from World War I, Jewish heroes one were sent there and artists were sent there. I mean, the, the celebrities, the musical and artistic celebrities that were in that camp, many of whose names are in the book, um, was astounding. I mean, the, the fact that they put on, they had lectures every week. They put on Brindabar, the children's opera was performed more than 55 times. The Requiem was performed dozens of times under Raphael Schachter's leadership. And after each performance, everybody was put on a train and shipped east. So these heroes, they're here. These are the heroes, right? They knew what was going to happen when they chose to sing the words to the Nazis that they could not speak, the words of, the, of Verdi's Requiem. Yet they still stood up, half starved, sick as dogs, and did it. It is unbelievable to me. It is astounding. And so that to me is heroic. That is. It's almost beyond words. And that's what I hope comes across in the book, that music is hope. And that these people felt driven by something so much bigger than themselves. There's a line that Raphael Schechter, the director, the maestro, I pulled his speech. Someone remembered his speech and wrote it down. And and there's an actual line from the book. I don't remember if this is in the note to the reader, but some of the stuff he says in the book are actually his words. And I was so tempted to put an asterisk there because it's that important to me. But then I realized it would draw the reader immediately. Where's the asterisk? And it would draw them out of the moment. And I wanted the moment to be powerful. I wanted his words to lift the reader up as it lifted his choir up as they knew they were singing and then they were going to die. I mean, it's just, it's astounding to me. I can't even, ugh. <laughs> and you do a re- really good job of recreating that. And it's, it's, Powerful knowing that about the words in there, that because it's you know, and that and by the way, you did the right thing because putting an asterisk would have made people then pulled them out yeah. of the story to go look it up, and yeah. uh, that would that would lost some of the the theat, the theater and the realism part of it. I guess is my point. Yeah, thank um, you. But the you know it, uh, um, but it is you know this whole first of all just the the world itself at that time. It's just, it's hard to even fathom 
the what the people were dealing with. And then when you're, you know, it, they're, they're skirting this line where, you know, it's like you have to be, uh, at any moment, your life could be ended because somebody with a gun decides, you, I don't need you anymore. And and you go from this world where everyone's adoring you in, a, in an opera house to, uh, um, to now suddenly... Yeah, that that world's pretty much, you know, even though it's there, it's kind of, yeah. it's, it's, it's scary and gone and you got to figure out how to uh, survive this, this madness that's happening, I guess is where I'm going with that. So Yeah. And, and thread the needle because, you know, she finds out that Seidel says, and here I've been giving you extra rations, extra food rations, which she didn't know. And he says it in front of the other prisoners. So, you know, she's threading this needle constantly of, you know, how do I manage him, this crazy commandant, and how do I manage all these people who want me to, you know, be there for them too. And she does it in the beginning by kind of uh, distancing herself from people, except for Marika, her one friend. But then over time, as she's, as Time goes by and she realized that, realizes that Willie is not coming to save her. She realizes that she's surrounded by people who actually care about her. They don't care how she sings. They don't care how she looks. They care about her as a person. And that is, she had that with her father and originally with her sister until her sister turns. And which is fascinating too. Um, but she realizes that she's surrounded by people if she just opens herself up to it. And again, so many of us are like that. There are people that want to help, but we don't want to accept the help. We're too proud. We're too stoic. We're too this or that. There are tons of people that want to help if we just open our emotional doors a little bit and let them in. So I think that, you know, being an opera singer is a very, like being a writer is a very alone job not lonely but you're kind of alone you know when you're writing you're alone even if people are around you you're in your own world that you're creating when you're an opera singer you in you're in your character you have to rely on the people around you on stage because you you know they're your castmates teammates but it really is you your body's the instrument and so to get outside of that is um a challenge for some people it really is a challenge for some people and for some opera singers who I've known. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's not, I would not just think opera singers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but this, your, your story is powerful. And it's funny because funny is not the right word, but you were just describing a few minutes ago that that whole scene was Seidel where it's, where the food, the talking about how she is not unaware that he's been giving her extra rations has stuck with me. All right. That was one that uh, I'm glad that you mentioned it because that one really stuck with me because of what he says to her. Well, you want the same rations as who is what I give to the old person or what I give to the child. And it's like, they're all on different levels. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you're definitely, you're in a world where you're in, he's controlling everything. Yes. Completely on a whim. I mean, it's, and, and that is the, you know, the, um, the last minute-ness of living in that world, the day-to-day insecurity, um, that's one of the major tortures. Obviously, there's the physical torture of being cold and being hungry, and I'm not, obviously, I'm not belittling that. But the long-lasting, from what I've read and from what I've heard from people with whom I've had the, the privilege of speaking, Um, who were in camps like this have said that's the lasting effect is that you really didn't believe that you would see the next sunrise. So if that is your mentality, then how do you, what decisions do you make? How does that alter the way you make decisions? Well, it does, the consequences no longer matter, right? So um, I, I ran into someone recently at an event who commented on the fact that Ursula and Marika worked together to scoop up the food that the Nazi guard spits out. They, they take turns scooping it up and eating it. And the food for people who haven't read the book is um, it's half flour, half um, 
uh, sawdust. So it's really not even food, but they're so hungry that as they're working in the kitchen, they scoop it up. And there were two people I was talking to. And the one woman said, oh my God, that was so powerful because it really informed me. They were so desperately hungry. And I thought, oh God, she gets it. That's great. The other woman said, oh, that was disgusting. I can't even, why would they do that? And I said, because because they were hungry. She said, well, no one can be that hungry. And I said, well, clearly you've never been that hungry and neither have I, thank God. But when I write these things, I become that character while I'm writing it. And so I, I, that's what I would do, or at least that's what I think I would do. But the other woman, the first woman commented again, she said, I love that they work together. They could have very easily scooped it up just for themselves, but they chose to break it in half, even under those dire circumstances. Same thing with the woman who doesn't have a name, who comes outside when she sees Ursula scratching her head and gives her a lice comb, you know, because she knows she has lice. And she says, no, just take it. You need it more than I do. So when we have so much less and things become more precious, do you share the little you have or do you hoard? And, you know, people I'm sure want to believe they'd share, but there's a part of me that believes that a lot of people wouldn't share. And that's makes me sad, but all of my books um, really are written with the idea of positivity, um, compassion, empathy, hope. All of my books are, this is my fourth published book. And the one I'm writing now, which probably will come out next year, um, is also about relationships and hope and change through choice. And so that's really a theme that runs through all my books. Gotcha. And it's, it, it comes through loud and clear, I got to tell you. I, one of the things I want to ask you is, you know, the settings in Nazi Germany and the, the storyline centers around Adolf Hitler, and uh, and I don't want to give away some of this, this stuff that happens in here because I think it's really cool, some things that happen at the very end. <laughs> of the story. Um, the, uh, but these are at least in, in lots of people's minds. Some of it is very familiar. Um, the storyline, at least parts of it. And how do you keep yourself in touch with the time and reality? And where I'm, let me just give you an example of what I mean. What I mean by this is that like I, there was a show on a right before COVID hit and, uh, that got canceled. Unfortunately, it was a pretty good show. Um, but it was supposed to be life in the early seventies. And, uh, um, and they did great with the dress and the, the things like this and stuff. But every once in a while, the script writer, whoever was writing the script for some of them, they'd throw in some things that was not said in 1971. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Very modern, very modern concept. And, right. and, uh, and that's what I mean is how do you, how do you keep from, you know, how do you stay in that era? I guess is my point and the words they might use. And, um, well, I think from reading all the books I read that got me in that mindset. Um, I always have a thesaurus app open. And so, uh, you know, I'm constantly looking for new or interesting words that don't sound pretentious. Cause that's like every time I read a book and I see a word that I have to look up, I'm like, really, really, you couldn't have picked a more accessible word. And I get it. People are trying to think outside the box. So, but I do try to do that. Um, there were some words that, uh, what was the phrase I had? Oh, originally, no one knows this. I haven't said this before. So originally I had the phrase in there. Otto says, when he's talking about um, Ursula's sister, Anna, becoming really cozy with Hitler, he says, what's the phrase? Keep your enemies, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. <laughs> so I had that in there and someone pointed out to me, it was one of my editors, a freelance editor. Her name's Karen. She's fabulous. And she said, I may be wrong, but I think that's from a Godfather movie from this. And I was like, Oh my God. So I went online and I, I looked up the phrase and she was absolutely right. That's I mean, funny. that is a huge, that would have been a major error. So I am certainly not above those. Um, and, but going back someone else, Addie Applebaum, who's a friend of mine who read the book twice, God bless her and made it so much better. She, um, she, I used the term cravat, I think instead of tie and she and I went back and forth about that. 
So that led to me researching cravat, which is, of course, the French word for tie, but it also has a connotation as opposed to an ascot. So, you know, all of this detail is important. So the, the scene when Ursula and Willie get on Hitler's plane, I'm writing madly like Schroeder at the piano. And all of a sudden I was like, well, darn, now I need to know what Hitler's plane looks like. Right. Not a big deal. Google Hitler's plane. Well, which one? At the height of his power, he had like 38 or 52 or something. And I was wow. like, oh. That led to two days of research on Hitler's plane. Every video I could find online, you know, watching him get into a plane, trying to get visuals of inside the plane. Um, and then, and then I thought my dad said, who was, who was a pilot, an amateur pilot. He said, um, he said, well, what about cabin pressurization? Luckily that day I had looked up cabin pressurization because I thought I have them having this whole conversation on the plane. Well, if they're wearing oxygen masks, clearly that's not going to happen. Turns out it was, it came into use the year I had them on the plane. I was like, okay, we're going to pretend that it happened a month after. And Hitler definitely would have had, you know, the, you know, most recent technology on his planes. So, so that kind of level of detail led me down rabbit holes. The boat they get on to sail, um, I stopped. It was probably a day and a half where I went online and I'm looking. Then I looked in 1938, passenger, passenger manifests to get, and I got some names from there. I pulled different names. So what the stateroom looked like down to the last detail, it all mattered to me. So then get this, the book is like, the cover's done. It's about to come out sort of, you know, still being proofed. My father says, you know, that's such a beautiful cover. Why are there American planes on the cover? And I was like, what? And so I looked at it and he was right. They were American bombers. Now I could have explained that away and said, Oh, the Americans were coming. But the reality is they're supposed to be German and we changed them. But I reached out to my fabulous cover designer, Asha Hussein, and she immediately changed it. But it was one of those things that I was like, Oh my God, because people love to catch errors. I mean, I do too. It's fun. You're like, ah, I found something. But so I did the best I could. (laughs) Well, it, it works really well. And it's, it's cool to know that you did all that because that that's my point is that with such a topic that lots of people are experts on it and lots of people yes. are going to know and, and things and just like your father going, that's, that's the wrong plane. And, I know. Um, yeah. and it's cool that someone pointed out to you before you got to the, other I, place. I mean, seriously. but it's that, that's what I meant. That's, you know, it's all that type of stuff that, because it's, Mm -hmm. because you will have people going, no, they would not have said that, or they would not have done that, or they're, you know, this is not, and it's, it, I, I'm a fan of uh, the, just the the technology of the time and the planes and what they needed it to do for them. And one of the things, you know, one of the the American bombers was called a a B-17 and the B-17 was, you know, had, the sky filled with them at times. And, um, and you know, basically what happened a lot of the times is that they take these pictures of the, the crew before they would leave. And you see these pictures all the time because that's what history's filled with them. Well, they took those pictures because they knew that most of them probably weren't coming back. If any of them yeah. were coming back yeah. and yeah. they want to have a record of who was on that plane. And the, uh, um, what's interesting is that they didn't have, they really didn't have heat on them and they're flying at such a level. And they talk about how lots of the, the crew suffered from frostbite and stuff like this yeah. from flying so high. And so it's, it's interesting what you were just saying, talking about the, the oxygen, the ability to uh, um, even just heat <laughs> um, those yeah. planes. So interesting, yeah. but cool. So thanks for talking about that. Cause that's a neat thing that you're, yeah. you're, you're sharing there that, uh, and I, I just wonder, because that's that's such a topic that people would be going, oh, okay, they're looking for, you know, it's kind of like looking for the wristwatch on John Wayne in one of his Western exactly. movies. Right? It's like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's high noon, I know, because I'm looking at my Apple Watch, <laughs> yes, damn it. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that would be better. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> um, nice. Uh, you know, so we got we to gotta go go back to where did the original idea come from? I mean, what's, what's that, that moment that you said, yeah, I'm going to write this? Um, so I alluded to this earlier. So Addie Applebaum was the director of the Central Pennsylvania Youth Opera. I ended up um, getting involved with them and my middle son was in a, one of their shows and one of my voice students was in one of their shows. So I went and I met Addie and they were performing Brundabar 
which was written by Hans Krasha, and he was in Terrorizing in the Camp, but I didn't know any of that. So I'm watching this show, <clears throat> and a woman named Inga Auerbacher, who lives in New York City and um, is very much alive, thank goodness, came and spoke. My student contacted this Inga person in New York who was a child in the camp, Terrazine, and saw Brindabar performed in the camp. So she contacted her and she asked her to come and speak. And she did. So she spoke before the performance. And of course, she has written a book called I Am a Star based on um, you know her own experience during the Holocaust. And I just was mesmerized by this conversation. So that's when my interest in that particular camp came into play. I was not writing then. I mean, this was 15 years ago. I only started writing six-ish years ago. So um, I just thought it was fascinating. And that kind of spurred my interest. It it was about music. It was about the camp and the whole thing. Um, And then as I was writing my book before Swan Song called Devil's Grace, Um, I had some downtime while I was actually in the competition up in Vermont that Swan, that devil's grace ended up winning. And I wrote the first chapter of Swan song. It just kind of, I was like, Oh, this is her name. And I just wrote the first chapter because I know that world very well. So her standing on a stage and getting ready for a performance and having a conversation with the theater custodian and the dressing room and the hair and makeup people, it all was just really easy. And it's easy to leave a chapter with a cliffhanger like that too, um, that she's going to end up meeting Hitler perhaps after the performance. So um That's how that happened, but it didn't, you know, it's not like it was a moment. It kind of evolved over time. The other thing was, I told you I had read a lot about Ava Braun. I had started to write a book about Ava Braun having survived, which, you know, did not happen. So I ended up not writing it. I still have the first couple of chapters. But then I started thinking about Ava Braun and how could I bring Ava Braun into Ursula Becker's story? And the answer was to create her sister. Her sister is Ava Braun. Everything that I say about her sister is based, except for the playing the violin, is based on Ava Braun. So I kind of ended up pulling all of these strands that I had created over the years together. And then um, my husband and I were watching a documentary. World War II documentary, and they said the name William Patrick Hitler. And both of us looked at each other and said, who? And so the next morning I Googled him and he had the same birthday that I had given Ursula, who of course is not real. So I was like, oh my God, that's weird. And then I was like, well, now we know who Ursula is going to fall in love with. So I did tons of research on Willie Hitler who not, there isn't a lot out there. There are no books on him that I could find. And so everything I did for him was on the internet. Um, his children still live on Long Island. And um, so I, I just, I could make up stuff about him, but everything in the book that he actually, you know, the, the article he wrote, why, why I hit my uncle, the fact that he went to Germany to take advantage of his uncle's kindness, that he worked in a car factory and at the Reichs Credit Bank, that's all true, which is all, as you know, in the back of the book, I say all that. Um, but that's how the book came to be. So it was kind of a mishmash. There was no aha moment. There were a bunch of aha moments, but they were years apart that all came together. But I wrote the book in like eight months. I mean, it, it really came. It just came very quickly. That's cool to know that. That's interesting, you know, because, because you know, talk with authors and they have different things that happen around the original idea. And I think it's neat that you kind of had this other path that you were going down and then that kind of took a left turn at Albuquerque type thing. And, exactly. uh, and it's, it's awesome. The, uh, very cool. So, you know, one, one of the things I want to do is talk about your writing style and, and, uh, you're able to capture the violence of the era through your descriptions. And here's one of them. Um, his words hung in the air or sort of re- recalled the previous day when she had watched in horror as a man, had been dragged out of a bank and beaten. The sound of a heavy leather boot finding its mark in the man's ribs made her wince, and if she closed her eyes, she could vividly recall the stench of vomit as his stomach emptied its contents on the SS officer's boot. When you're creating this this imagery, I mean, what what is it that's? I mean, how how are you doing it? I mean, what did I mean? Because it's it it makes you it doesn't make you go it doesn't make you say what it makes you go wow and it kind of pulls you in as a reader into the story. 
I mean, thank you. How you <laughs> um, that is very kind. Um, because when I, when I write characters, when they're speaking or things are happening to them, it's always from the inside out. And I don't know whether that's from my years on the stage where everything was from the inside out. In fact, my first two books are about a blind Boston-based child psychologist, and he's blinded by one of his clients. And he's so troubled that he missed the warning signs in this kid that he goes back to school to become a profiler and teams up with the detective who was on his case, so he's never seen her. And um, when I had to describe, his name is Dr. Julian Stryker. In the first book, I had to describe him as someone, he's walking into a restaurant, and I realized I didn't know what he looked like because I had written him from the inside out. I had, I really didn't take time to think about that, which was so bizarre when I actually stopped. I was like, how could I not have done that? But it was because I was, I literally, I, I, I put a blindfold on after the kids went to school for two days in a row. And I wore a blindfold walking around the house to see what, how annoying that some of the challenges were because I wanted to be inside his world. And I talked to two people who have been blind their whole lives. One, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is that I write from the inside out. So that officer, you know, I'm, I, I saw it happening. I see it. Everything I write, it's like I'm on a movie set or on a stage. I can see it. I know what the shops look like behind them. I know what the cobblestone street looks like when Anna runs down the stairs it's, I can see everything. It's all there. And so it's just a matter of describing it. Now, having said that, I really, I, I'm not a big fan of description. I can't stand books that are flowery or, you know, if you can say it in two sentences, say it in two sentences, don't say it in six sentences, just because you need 85,000 words. And some people love description and I love that they love description. I am not one of those people. So I tend to get my words down on paper then I go back, sometimes even the same day, and I'll read it out loud, always read it out loud. And then I'm like, well, I need something there. For example, in Devil's Grace, last year's book, a uh, good friend of mine said, well, I want to know what the exam room looked like, where this person is. I said, it's an exam room. What, what, I, you know, what was on the wall? Why do you care? The action. And so, but I took his comment to heart. And I described a little bit about the exam room, but it was just, a, it was one or two sentences. That was it. So, um, but in that case, when there is violence or an accident, time slows down. If, if anyone has experienced either of those things, you know, it's our biological response. Time feels like it slows down. And so everything becomes more poignant, more powerful, smells become more pungent, your senses, that fight or flight response becomes, you know, when people, I had an experience in college where, it, you know, I was, it could have ended very badly and um, it didn't, thank goodness. But I don't remember what the people looked like, but I remember their genes. I remember what the room looked like. So we pick and choose what we focus on and who knows why we do that? Is it because that's more important? I needed to know where the, you know, the escape route was, that kind of stuff. So the smell of the vomit smells are very, very powerful, just like audio reminders are. They bring us back to a time or a place in an instant. And so that kind of anyone and the smell of vomit, again, is so pungent that the, I knew that that would bring the reader in. So I just, I try to put myself in my character's shoes as painful as it is and describe it from, from there, I guess, I think. That's awesome. Cause it, 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 it works very well because, uh, you know, and like you said, vomit is a perfect example because that's, if you ever mm -hmm. smelled it, you know, you know exactly what it's going to come back to you. And it's, there's different aspects of that, that just, you know, it's, it's kind of like even, you know, the, just that feeling where, and this is kind of going back to something I asked you before about, you know, making sure that you're staying in that world in that era. Um, mm -hmm. Well, even just, there's just things that'll make people pop back in, in time of what it was like, like being on a playground when you were, you were, you know, eight years old on the playground at school or something like this. And, yeah. 
And, uh, um, but I, I just, I just know that your descriptions and such, because I'm with you. I don't like, I don't need six very long paragraphs <laughs> of description to understand something. And that can be said in a lot of short, uh, words because the, this little bit right here, I mean, cause, cause you know, what's coming next. I stopped where he threw up on his boots. Well, you know, what's coming next. He's going to kick the rest of, he's going to kick him to death. So, and, uh, you know, and it's, it, it's like, uh, you know, any of those types of descriptions, but I, I just kudos to you because your descriptions are strong. They're powerful. And it, it really, it, it, uh, adds to the tension of what's going on and such doesn't take away. Thank you. I appreciate that. The, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I got to ask you, because this is a big deal is, uh, um, do you outline or do you not? <clears throat> you know, I, my first, um, my first book was never published yet. And it was the pre prequel to the blind to the next two, the next two I outlined. Um, I started them without an outline, but then I quickly outlined them, which was awesome because like you could walk away and come back the next day and know exactly what you needed to do. It was a, it was a beautiful plan. Devil's grace came about in the last year's book came about in such a weird way that I'm happy to tell you, cause it is truly an interesting story, but it came about in such a weird way that I really couldn't make an outline. And then literally it just kind of kept coming. So I didn't have an outline for that. The swan song the first half of the book um, did not have an outline. The second half of the book, because it vacillates between Willie and Ursula chapter to chapter, which is P.S. so much easier to write. <laughs> I know a lot of books these days go back and forth between characters. They have the character's viewpoint per chapter. I was asked at a book club, I was asked, you know, why do people do that? And I said, well, the first thing is it's super easy to organize that way. And so you're very clear the action can move forward, but from different person's perspectives. But um, so I did do sort of an outline, but normally when I do an outline, it's only of the next four or five chapters. And it's just a, like chapter 33 will be um, Ursula goes to the war office and, but that's it. And so then I have to create everything else from there. Um, with the book I'm writing right now, uh, I started with an outline and then it just fell away. And then I stumbled for a while and now it's back on track and I know exactly where I'm going. So in general, I'd say no. Cool. <laughs> That's my long answer. <laughs> cool. I got, you know, it's, it's funny because I sound like a little kid asking, do I have to do an outline? <laughs> but yeah, it, I know. <laughs> But it's, uh, but I think I think it's interesting how different authors do di different ways, and like you even have your own method where it's a, it's a little different of a type of outline. So I like that. Well, That's cool. And again, I you know I feel guilty sometimes, not for long, but sometimes because I didn't dream of becoming an author. I did have a goal of getting a book published, but never in my mind was that corresponding with becoming an author. I don't know why, because obviously it should, but it didn't. I like I have certain life goals. And that was one of them. And so, but my, this was never my plan. And I, I started writing because I was, we lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I closed my eyes. I was brushing my teeth. The toothpaste cap fell on the floor without opening my eyes. I leaned down to pick it up and I couldn't find it. I mean, for like two minutes, I couldn't find it. And I thought, God, how irritating would it be to be blind and not be able to find the flipping toothpaste cap? Like how infuriating would that be? And then I stood up and I opened my eyes and I looked in the mirror and the name Julian Stryker came in my head. And I was like, well, what's happening right now? This is new. And so uh, he, it just kept coming. Like these characters kept coming. So I went downstairs and I literally started writing and my husband came home from work hours later. He said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I think I'm writing a book. He's like, great. Okay. Let me know how that goes. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? What am I doing? I didn't know what I was doing. So that was the first one that has not been published. So it's cool what you're talking about, though. I, I came to this very weirdly, but I came to singing very weirdly, too, kind of. So it's just the way I am. I'm weird. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's awesome. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that you've you've talked about, uh, um, we've you've mentioned a couple of times we've had a chance to talk about it. And I got to make sure I bring this uh, to, to light is that you have this cool thing called note to the reader at the end of your book. Mm -hmm. And and just 
talk about why you, you felt compelled to include this. Um, I know that some writers love the sense of mystery when, the, especially historical fiction, where, you know, their world, their imaginary world is blending with what actually happened. I am a very, very practical person, believe it or not. I, someone said, oh, you're a dreamer. I said, no. And if I am, I'm a practical dreamer. Um, it's really important to me that people know what's real and what's not. Because when I'm reading historical fiction, I often will think, well, is that true? And then I literally will put the book down, go research it and come back. So I'm pulling myself out of the story. Now, the same thing could happen when you read Swan Song, because you're not going to, but you could flip to the back if you wanted to know right away whether it was true or not. But that's why I did it. because, And I kept the whole time that I kept notes of. See, that that was so important to me that I kept running notes of what I wanted to comment on at the end of the book. Um, because I love to know what's real and what's not. It's just me being kind of neurotic about wanting to know. So I people can choose to read it or not, but I love to know that stuff. Well, I'm glad you did. It's awesome. I mean, and, and with it coming at the end as opposed to the beginning, you, you now can kind of go back and think as you're reading that note to the reader. It's awesome. Thank you for including it. It's it's uh, it really uh, um, is is a great addition to the, to the book. Well, thank you. And you just you know what I should have done is added page numbers. I didn't even think of that at the time. But actually, in fairness, I didn't know what the page numbers were at the time when I wrote it. But that would be helpful to know too. Like so, someone could go oh, page two seventy three and flip right back. But another book, another time. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say because it's it just it's just a nice narrative of the reality of uh, the you know you've created this 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 storyline and here's all that stuff that was going on that I'm talking about or referring to or things that were happening in the reality of it. So good stuff. Thank you. I, I like Thanks. I like that. Um, Beth, you recently commented what an interesting class topic morality through history would make. I'd love to use books like Swan Song and other historical fiction novels to illustrate how morality and decision-making can change and how that impacts individuals in society. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, you know, this has been on my mind as I love history um, and I love psychology and sociology. Um, and morality and choice are just fascinating to me because what one person thinks is moral someone else thinks is amoral. And so who decides what is right? You know, we can use, well, anything, but I'm just off the top of my head recently, but abortion. I mean, the, the two sides will never agree on that for a multitude of reasons, but, and each side believes that they are morally correct. So morality then depends on the person making the decision. And the person making the decision, the circumstances of that person can change over time, depending on, on what's going on in that period of history. So, for example, going back to the book, if a woman sells her body in some states it, or a man, it's considered prostitution and he or she could be arrested. If a woman sells her body for a coat in a concentration camp to survive through the winter, morally, is that questionable or is it acceptable? And there is no right answer. And the answer can change over time. So it comes down to free will, which is always dicey. And we can go back through history, not just wars, but epidemics, um, any point in history, and look at the choices that were made. We tend to be very judgmental because we view them through our own lens of our current time in history. But what if you got inside those that time in history, those people's heads, and look at it from that perspective? You know, so a class, college or high school, looking at morality and choices in decision making through literature, historical fiction, or History. I mean, historical, actual, just historical fiction. I mean, historical books. But just taking that as a topic or as a thesis idea, it's melding. So many things right now are melding, right? Our, our homes have become, our offices have become, our playgrounds have become this, that, the other thing. So courses, one of the things that's happening, I think, is that silos and the way people used to silo information is going away. 
healthcare is changing dramatically based on COVID. And that's a whole nother conversation. But silos are going away. Things are really kind of merging. So why not take several topics and pull them together to make, in my opinion, what would be, I can't teach it, I'm not a historian, but a really interesting class on morality and decision-making throughout history. I just, and it's not necessarily my book, but I just think it's a really interesting topic. P.S. Feel free to do that with my book, but it doesn't have to be my book. That's all I'm saying. Oh, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea because there's any number of eras that you could uh, focus on, including the modern and yeah, uh, <laughs> the COVID with what's going on with COVID, the, the, the choices people make with, again, doesn't matter what side you fall on vaccine versus not vaccine. Both sides really believe they are morally correct. So what is the sociological impact of those quote moral decisions and, and how do we alter the, that decision-making to bring someone over to our side or should we even be trying to do that or should we just try to understand the other side and it's easy to say oh we should just understand except we're potentially talking about lives i mean people are dying and you could say the same thing about world war ii right do you report your neighbor because they have extra food rations and if you report them you get extra food rations so what's the, it's a terrible, terrible choice. But for some people, apparently it didn't seem to be much of a choice. And I think that a lot of the reason that people don't talk about what happened to them during the war is that the psychological scars of having to make some of these decisions that will last with them forever. Because in polite society or, you know, 2020 vision, it's, easy for us to say, well, how could you have done that? But when you're in the moment, you're going to do what you got to do to survive. Or are you? I don't know. But it's, it's just fascinating to me, that whole idea. Oh, it is because people have to make decisions. And it's yeah. and depending on that situation, you hope they make the, the right one. But what is the right one? And exactly. I think that fits perfectly. I think that'd be an awesome class. I'll sign up. <laughs> Good awesome. stuff. That's great. So, so Beth, uh, you know, we're, we're coming to an end here. And uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure you get to share with everybody is where can people connect and learn more? So, um, well, I'm going to be at the Rhode Island Author Expo this weekend. If anyone happens to be in Rhode Island, it's at the Crown Plaza in Warwick, Rhode Island, um, this Saturday, the 11th, from 9 to 3. My website is Elizabeth's com, where you can go online and learn all about me, my life, my books. And um, through the holidays, I'm partnering up with an organization called booksarewings.org and Inkfish Books, which is a bookstore in the next town over. Um, and we've created a roadie reader book box where people can go on my website and purchase a roadie reader box. And inside the box are Swan Song and or Devil's Grace, my last two books. Also, everything hand, everything's handmade in there, made in Rhode Island. There's a candle called Swan Song that's made by a local artisan. There's a chocolate in the form of a G-clef. And there's a, there are tissues for when you cry that say Swan Song on them. And there's also a beautiful, beautiful bookmark with a swan at the end. It's a beautiful metal bookmark. So you can go on my website and purchase those uh, through the holidays to get there for your special reader in your life. Very nice. Where'd the idea for that come up from? The, jeez, boy, talk about, the book remember what I told you about me sounding like my dad? Okay, there was an example right there, all right? Where, where did the idea come up for the roadie box? Is that what you called it? The roadie reader book box, yeah. Yes. It was created by Lisa Valentino at Inkfish Books, and she was trying to survive during COVID as a bookstore owner. And um, she realized that people still were saying, how can I buy books? How can I get books? And they didn't want to go through Amazon because they wanted to support the local bookstore and local. So um, she put together these boxes and she advertised them and she would leave them on the curb. People would pay ahead of time and they'd pick them up. So there was no contact. She was shipping them all over the country. Uh, it was in the Boston Globe. And so um, that she came up with it. She's brilliant. And um, she picked me. She picks a local author each year. And I was very fortunate that she chose me. So, and, and part of the proceeds go to Books Are Wings, which put free books in the hands of kids in the Providence and Rhode Island area. So it's a pretty cool organization. 
Very cool. Well, kudos to you there. That's awesome. Very good. That's good stuff. I, you know, I got uh, one last question I want to ask you, and it's just, it goes like this. Uh, uh, Beth, do you have a, a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given a chance to say thank you? Um, I went to Tower Hill School in Wellington, Delaware, a small private school, and I am so grateful that my parents sent me there because really, truly, all of my teachers were amazing. Um, but when I think of the people that really stood out to me, um, Mr. Wood was an English teacher, and I remember reading The Grapes of Wrath with him and being and just the conversations around that and how moved I was. And he had a wry sense of humor, but he was one of the smartest people. So he, you know, I would say thank you, Miss Griffin. Mrs. Griffin was a math teacher who said to me, you can do this. You just think you can't do that, which was the most profound thing anyone could have ever said, because it made me realize the power of my, of my mind. You know, I needed to just believe that I could do something. So Ms. Griffin was, Mr. Pearson was a sixth grade English teacher who used to throw um, erasers at us. And um, we adored him. He was just fantastic. He was such a good, and my favorite thing from him is he, the phrase that literally I still think of at 53 years old, when someone says, what is a microphone? Or no, what is being sad? The answer is being sad is when you, he always used to say, it's never, nothing is when. Something has to be a something. It can't be a when. So even now when, when someone says, you know, what's that? Oh, it's when you, and I'll pause and I'll say, wait, wait, wait. And I'll, and I'll regroup. So he's awesome. passed away. But so Mr. Pearson and Mr. Bacher was a history teacher who ended up being the head of the upper school. And um, I just saw him not long ago um, at a reunion and he was a great teacher and just really all of those people, all of them were just, they're great people. And I'm just so grateful for the guidance and the leadership. And they taught me to never accept mediocrity, never accept it. You are what you create. You are what you think and you are what you do and live it, learn it and love it and respect yourself. That's what I got from them. That is awesome. Uh, Beth, Swan Song is an amazing read that makes the reader want more, even though the story has come to an end. I mean, you've created the imagery of the time that can only help to remind others of the atrocities that were committed and the true fear that had to be embraced. I, I can't thank you enough for talking with me today and sharing, and I wish you the best in all you do. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me on. And let me just say that um, I would love to talk to anyone who's listening if they want to reach out and have a conversation about anything, because I love to talk to readers or people who are thinking about becoming readers or educators. So feel free to reach out to me and I will get back to you. And thank you, Steve, for this opportunity. It truly, truly was a pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.